have the first John passage back up again? I'm going to save that one for the last, the next one. Okay. Can I have someone read that again? Thank you. Um, so what, on Wednesday I felt like I was really solid and I had written, 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 like lots and lots of pages and I was feeling really confident and good and then I did some more work. And then I called Josh on Friday and um, I said, this is what I'm thinking and I, I walked him through it really fast in 13 minutes and he said, you have a book, you have a book there. Um, you might want to cut it down a little bit. I'm like, oh. So, um, so I had a couple days of, of an afternoon and then yesterday relooking and trying to pare it down because there's so much here. Um, and when I relooked at the passage just by itself, I got struck by the, um, the, repeat, the repeated phrase, how we know. This is how we know. Um, how we know the content of love, that it's laying down our lives for one another. How we know we belong to the truth, um, the testimony of our hearts or conscience or spirit. Um, and then how we know that Jesus lives in us, the witness of the Spirit in us. All of these three how we knows seemed a little problematic to me. Um, each seemed to move toward the goal of reassurance so that believers could move onto focusing their energy on loving one another so that they know, you know, so go ahead and love one another. Um, yet, it just seemed problematic. It seems to me that these three how we knows might trip us back because they throw us back on our own uneasy consciences. And the, um, I'm not sure that that's the most reliable witness when we look at our own lives and when we look at the lives of um, those around us. Um, but let's deal a little bit with the first how we know. Uh, Warren last week said, um, was talking with us about what the content of laying down our lives for one another might look like. Um, he acknowledged that most of us are not actually going to be called to die in the manner of Jesus, that that's probably not going to be a physical reality for most of us. He suggested that laying down one's life might, might involve setting aside our own order, setting aside our lives in order to... Um, involve ourselves in the chaos of other people's lives or to walk in the room um, in hard situations, um, that growth and maturing might become more possible when our orderly lives are disrupted by chaos, that we, we get opened out, um, that a life lived on the border between chaos and um, order 
might open us up to walking with one another um, in new ways and loving one another in new ways. I want to suggest that Warren's act of actually offering his story last week, um, his and Jan's story, the story of their community who entered into the chaos with them, as well as the ones who could not, um, that his act of offering his story was a laying down of his life for us, a tangible way of loving our communion. Um, we can have the next slide. Um, whenever I hear laying down your life, I immediately am scurrying to find Henry Nouwen's quote, which is in my quote book. Henry Nouwen says, laying down your life means making your own faith and doubt, hope and despair, joy and sadness, courage and fear available to others as ways of getting in touch with the Lord of life. So Warren last week made his story available to us. Um, I, I want to suggest also that a tangible way that we as a body demonstrated our love for Warren last week was by listening to and receiving and holding his story in its complexity and beauty and truth, um, knowing that those few minutes of sharing on a Sunday morning represented a multitude of true stories um, surrounding that particular time in Warren and Jan's and their families and communities' lives. Um, so the first how, how we know, um, that's, that one doesn't scare me as much. Uh, the second how we know is where uh, I want to spend most of our time today. This how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So I'm just going to read that line again. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything that we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. In these verses, John explores how people might know that they belong to the truth. And it seems like it's sort of a prayer of examine, uh, uh, an examination of conscience. Um, the first set of people that he mentions, those whose hearts condemn them, um, John seems to be talking to people who, who respond to this question of how they know with self-condemnation, either guilty or anxious hearts, and the second set responds with confidence. Um, it seems like he's moving both of them toward freedom. Like, for the first ones, if, if your hearts condemn you, know that God is greater than your hearts. Um, and, and God knows everything, so move on toward freedom and loving one another. If you have confidence, great. Um, move toward freedom. And the goal for both of the groups is to love one and believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. Um, my concern is with the first group the ones whose hearts condemn them, the guilty, anxious folks. Because I think that's more, um, I think that's more where we live. Anxious people, guilt-ridden, those whose hearts condemn them are encouraged to know that God is greater than their hearts. And I don't think this is a simple thing. I think this is pretty complicated. Um, it might be, you know, someone needs to ask for forgiveness, and that's a, it's a ready, normal part of 
uh, the life of faith. Um, and if that takes care of it, great. Um, for, it might be mean making restitution for a wrong done. And that would also feel like, um, feel simpler. Um, but what I've been wondering about are the other reasons why people are anxious or struggle with self-condemnation. What untrue stories have been written into their lives or into our lives that, um, that don't belong to the truth, that might have shaped the imaginations of people who feel vulnerable to um, anxiety, self-condemnation. Uh, so my wonderments were, how do these anxious ones move toward embracing the story, the true story that God is greater than their hearts, than our hearts? Um, I think this is where the body of Christ, where how we listen to and love one another into true stories matters immensely. I feel like this is where the work is with this passage, or at least yesterday, this one. This is what solidified. Um, I'm not sure that we can get to God is greater than our hearts in any real way without one another. When I think about the groupings of people, I would, I would place myself more in uh, the regularly anxious or uh, uneasy conscience, and some of that's good. Um, I think it, it keeps us honest, because um, it could be something that I've done that I need to ask for forgiveness for, something that I have left undone that really needs to be done or might not get done, and I'm, I'm just failing. Um, but I would say that a more consistent source of my own self-condemnation has to do with living out of stories that don't actually belong to the truth. Um, and these stories uh, can come from anywhere. Um, we, we get them all around us in society. We get them from our families. We get them from um, chance comments, media, uh, cultural structures. We, just, we are um, people of story. And the stories that we have received or that we've taken on or the names that we've allowed to be plastered on us or that we think may or may not be mine, maybe it's true, um, are the things that bind us. Um, and they come from everywhere. Um, and I don't think I'm unusual in that. I think that's just, I think that's being human. And maybe it's being anxious human. Um, maybe that's not everybody. I, I was like, but the people who are confident, I'm like, I don't know who those people are. Maybe there are a couple people I don't really know. <laughs> them. Um, and, I, and I like that, that John blessed them too. Like, great, have confidence, go. Um, it's like, well, that's not where I live. Um, some stories just don't belong to the truth. And um, part of why I felt good on Wednesday is I had coffee with someone, and we had this great conversation about vocation. And, um, and after the coffee, she's like, do people know that story? I'm like, no, I don't know. And she's like, well, you should tell that story. And it's like, okay, I'll tell that story. So I don't know, this felt like the story. Um, and I felt peaceful about it, but I wanted to go ahead and share like some of the stories that don't belong to the truth that just bind you, or that bound, have bound me. Um, what was interesting is in that coffee, she is pursuing ministry and has a pretty, um, pretty easily shared her sense of calling. She just named it. It was just out there. It was no big deal. Um, and I remarked on that because um, it, it, it caught me by surprise because, my, because it's been uh, issues of vocation or have been a profoundly threatening process for me. Um, the question of vocation 
or calling it out has, uh, over the last few years, been like the most painful grief process of my adult life. And um, <laughs> some people have heard some of the stories. Woo! Some of you have borne with and, and sat and listened and listened and listened. Um, the act of being named as a pastor, of not being invisible, of not hiding what I love, exposed really deep wounds and untrue stories uh, that really needed to be exercised. And I use that word exercise because this time around, looking at the story that's been, I, I made it much shorter, so we're not here till noon. Um, this time looking at the story, it's the first time it occurred to me that like some of the names and some of the pastings on, uh, what came to mind was Legion. It's like, this is Legion setting up household, having set up household, and stories that needed to be like exercised. Um, in what in the processes that yeah in different in storytelling processes um, one of the story one of my stories and it's not the defining story but one of my stories is that I grew up in a household that was pretty scary um, domestic violence um, those words conjure images and they should alcohol abuse uh, high anxiety um, yeah it was at least it was that way when my dad was around when he wasn't around. Uh, life went on pretty smoothly. Um, the thing about like the, the named, the whole vocation thing is named, not being actually visible, um, not hiding what you love, all of that, the being invisible, hiding what I loved, and resisting wrong naming were all part of surviving. And so what was really interesting is that um, these were the ways in which I had learned how to live. And, and in other, like, work context, these things weren't operational. I, I, I had no issue about being invisible in other work contexts. I had no issue about hiding what, I, hiding what I loved. I had no issue about being named in another uh, work context. But there was something about Mountainside and something about a church context that activated all of, all of, these, um, all of these stories. Um, being invisible was about avoiding punishment. Uh, standing out or, or being seen by my dad had always generated anxiety. Um, by the time I was eight, I knew when he was going to be home before he was home. I, like, I, like five minutes before, I was like, it was in the air somehow, and I just had a radar. Um, when I learned young to hide what I love, because my dad used that kind of knowledge to manipulate. So if you hit it, then uh, then you had a better chance of actually being able to do what you loved. For me, that was stuff like reading and singing. I don't think he's ever heard me sing, and that was a big deal in my childhood. Um, it's actually still a big deal. Um, the naming thing is harder to talk about. Um, I thought I was going to be able to say words out loud, and I just can't, and, that, and it's not necessary. you know. Um, but the, the misogyny, um, yeah, just thinking of names uh, pasted on or words pasted on, they're not just individual words, they, have, they conjure up whole stories behind them. Like if you think of the bad words, <laughs> you can think of bad words. Um, they're, they're not the thing in and of themselves, it's that they, they conjure up enormous narratives behind them that get pasted on and you either live into or you don't live into. Um, and um, 
yeah, there was something about, um, about this that I was, I've resisted sort of wrong naming, even titles, probably for the last two decades. Just like, no, I'll tell you what I do. Let me tell you what I do. The other thing is like, no. Um, the thing about, yeah, I, I think I said it, is the strange thing about names or name calling is that the words contain stories and they contain narratives of oppression. Um, yeah. So anyway, part of this was that although I'd spent years in therapy, <laughs> I spent, we spent a lot of time and money there. Um, and some really good work happened there, but it wasn't until like this whole pastor thing came about or was in the air or that all of this other, like, were, it just, this naming thing, this visible, not being invisible, this loving thing, it just bypassed a whole, all those years. And I was 14 again um, with, the intensity of grief about having to move beyond the, um, the untrue stories. And that's really, that's been really painful. Um, yeah, mountainside got tangled in this old mess. <laughs> and um, I'm really grateful for it because uh, truer stories have been written. And there's been a lot, of, a lot, a lot of work that's been done. And some of you have... Um, listened a lot and I think and that's one of the ways I feel uh, I've been loved by I feel like that's one of the ways we love one another is that we listen to one another's stories and we walk with one another even in um, even in chaos that happens as a result of stuff that happened a long time ago or that suddenly gets activated um, what's shocking to me so that's the story I wanted to tell that story um, What's shocking and actually painful um, is it seems like it's sort of a pattern of a life of faith. Um, that God uses whatever chaos or disruptions or circumstances that emerge in our life. God doesn't cause them. God doesn't cause them, doesn't invite them in, but when they happen and they do happen because that's what life is, that's what happens in life, that um, God uses those to reveal our untrue stories so that lies and half-truths and bondage can be exercised and truer stories can be written in us um, or revealed in us. Um, that chaos can take many forms. It can be job loss, death, disillusionment, failed relationships, phone calls out of the blue. It can be aging. It can be anything. It can be something seemingly positive, right? Like, oh. There is a change, there's a shift. It can, it can come from anywhere. And if we're willing, um, if we're willing to go there, and if people are willing to walk with us, or if we are willing to walk other, with others, um, newness or a new way of making meaning can emerge. Um, one of the things that um, I told Warren that wasn't gonna get in the sermon today was, uh, I've been reading a book by Alan Jones, or it's called Soul Making, and he talks about the pattern of discipleship, that um, the disciples, this, this sense of meaning-making, um, order, they, they were called out by Jesus, they followed Jesus, they made a life with him, they were learning true stories or true ways of being in the world. Order. And then chaos. 
Passion Week, um, the crucifixion, the betrayal of Jesus, their own betrayals of Jesus, uh, meaning betrayed, chaos. Um, and then the resurrection, which doesn't to me seem super triumphal. I mean, it, it's new life, it's a different life. But for the disciples, in looking at it and thinking about it, that feels like loss to me. That feels like hope. And it also feels like preparing for a long absence physically of someone that you loved. And learning a new way of life, listening for the, the movement of the spirit, um, to call something new that's never going to look like what it was. But it's something new, and it's not necessarily a place that they wanted to go. Um, or places, we're called into places that that are unknown, and that felt like, feels to me, and looking at that, feels like an unknown, and that pattern, that, that order, chaos, new life, but don't hear triumphal life, but hopeful life, and new, something different, and in some way listening and dependent, um, seems like the pattern of, of a life of faith. Um, yeah, God uses whatever circumstances are at hand. And I think I told Josh a couple months ago that it felt pretty ruthless, like merciless. And, um, and, I, and I wouldn't say that it, it's just because it's really painful. But, but I'm grateful for moving through. Um, let's see. So... How do we love each other out of the stories that we live by that don't belong to the truth? Um, can we have the next slide? Yeah. Um, one powerful way that we love one another is by listening to, receiving, and holding one another's stories. Um, I know I've experienced this. We do this for one another. Our hope is that we are the kind of people who will walk in when disaster happens. Um, or, yeah, we are listening one another toward freedom. David Augsburger, um, in one of the sessions, was completely on listening, and you have to prepare to listen, or some of us do. Um, the speaker said that being, so, being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Um, so I want to suggest that's one of the ways in which we move toward loving one another. We lay down our lives one another by sharing um, our, our hope, our despair, our stories. We um, love one another by listening to each other and being good holders of stories. Um, and this is where I think the listening uh, and laying down our lives comes together. Whether we're wrestling with stories that don't yet belong to the truth within ourselves, within our culture, within our body. We need to cultivate the ability to listen to um, and hear one another and hold the tensions, and hold the tensions of difference. Um, we need to know in our bones that there are multiple truthful stories surrounding any given situation, any event, any circumstances, any circumstance. Um, and that we're also wounded, sinful people. That both of those things, those, all of those things are true. Um, we know only in part, so we can lay down the need to be right 
and we can get curious. Can we have the next slide? Anybody remember Xena, Warrior Princess? Okay, so David sent me this a while ago. I'm not really sure why. Um, <laughs> somebody was being fierce, I know. Uh, I know. I know that I'm not always prepared to listen. Um, sometimes I need a timeout, I need to breathe, I need to create space. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, this is not unknown stuff. And if you see this fierce face, sometime you just like, oh, go ahead, have compassion, say, do you need a timeout? Do you just need a little rest? Um, if you're brave. Uh, <laughs> but we can afford to do this. We can afford to create space to listen. We can lay down our certainty. We can lay down our self-righteousness. We can lay down our shame. Um, because God forgives and God is faithful. Uh, we don't have the moral high ground, it's already taken, and part of our job is to be able to listen and hold stories, hold each other's stories, and move through dialogue. Um, we can afford to get curious, uh, we can afford to listen with curiosity to others and to ourselves, um, to our hates, to our deepest yearnings, to our abandonments to our creativity, to our edges, to our endings, to our violences, and our voices. Life isn't neat. We're called into unexpected places and to do hard things, but we're not alone. Um, okay. So, two things. Um, what stories might we need to offer one another? Maybe the next slide, she can go away. Um, what stories might we need to offer one another as gifts so that we can do the work of reconciliation in our own lives and in our communities? What stories or whose stories do we need to get curious about? Whose stories do we need to be willing to listen to and to hold? How do we listen and love one another more fully into belonging to the truth? I guess I'll end with this. Um, so, I talked to my dad last Sunday. This is pretty surprising. This may be the fourth time in 35 years. Um, and it seems like some of what I might need to get curious about is post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam from 50 years ago. Um, I might choose to listen to his stories uh, listen for the ones that actually belong to the truth, and also be alert to and listening for the ones that need to be exercised that don't belong to the truth. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. That's all we got. <laughs>